Joining me right now, Benjamin Teitelbaum, who is a University of Colorado Boulder professor who focuses on, writes about, studies the radical right and has a new book called War for Eternity, The Rise of the Far Right and the Return of Traditionalism. By traditionalism, he's talking about a philosophical movement. Uh, Steve Bannon uh, is a proponent of it, and he interviewed Steve Bannon in the book, as well as others globally, uh, such as Alexander Dugan in Russia. They have their differences. uh, They have their similarities. Uh, they certainly are uh, working to uh, change the global um, reality, uh, and he joins me uh, to talk all about it. Welcome to the program. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, in the book, you write about traditionalism, uh, which you describe as this obscure, spiritual, sort of religious school that has helped lead to the weakening of the European Union. Uh, And uh, in the U.S., uh, it has had a role as well. Um, And among other things, the philosophy emphasizes this return to what was good in the past, obviously, echoing uh, Make America Great Again. Tell us a bit about the ideology and what sets it apart and, and sort of why we need to know this uh, in terms of looking at the political reality moving forward. Well, it's it's a political ideology that's almost unknown. Uh, that's that's one of the first things to say. If you talked about this in a you know political science department, uh, you know most people would have never heard of it. And I really wish it had a different name. Um, traditionalism with a capital T, as you said, is really a, a spiritual school in the, in the first instance. But um, a branch of it has has become part of politics as well. And some of it, it would take a long time to, to really map it. But some of the key ideas uh, include one that you just mentioned, the belief that uh, history moves in cycles um, and that we are constantly moving through four ages um, going from golden to silver to bronze to dark, and then cata- after a cataclysmic event, back to golden again. Um, embedded in that seemingly simple concept is the notion that as time goes by, for the most part, things are getting worse, if we want to speak in broad terms. Um, so it's pessimistic and fatalistic in that in that sense. But the, uh, the big part of that is also that it, it denies the whole idea of progress. It denies that we could ever be meaningfully better or create a better world than what has once existed. Um, you know, it's a missense that traditionalists often, you know, could be said to, to worship precedent, to worship the past. Um, and to be it's very circular though. In the, <laughs> it's very circular though, in the sense that, uh, it, it, it's almost like there's this mythical past because, uh, if, if the world has always been moving toward progress, what was this, this actual original past, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, what was it that was, that was so great ages ago? And, and, um, we do get some details from traditionalists about that, about what their actual ideal is. But one of the, one of the features, and, and it's certainly not reassuring, I think, 
um, that I try to bring out in this book is that there is kind of an empty space in the ideology uh, surrounding just what you spoke about. Um, you know, that, that defining this golden age of the past, just as is the case for, you know, kind of everyday nationalists, like we might be used to thinking of, is, is very difficult and, and, and sometimes unspoken deliberately in traditionalism. Um, but one thing that they, that they uh, celebrate and that they, they see time as having eroded is boundaries and borders. Um, and when I say boundaries and borders, I mean that in almost all ways that you can, you can conceptualize it and conceive of it. Um, some of the early political traditionalists wanted race to be considered a part of, part of that uh, group of differences and boundaries that used to be great in the golden age, that different racial groups were clearly stratified and separated from one another. And that as time has gone on, those boundaries have, have worn apart. Um, they might talk about it in terms of gender. You know, the clear distinctiveness of men and women is, is something, but they would also extend this. And this is where you have more contemporary actors like, like Bannon or Alexander Dugan would extend this to also refer to boundaries between states, uh, mm -hmm. boundaries between communities, religious boundaries. Um, and, and that, of course, sets them up to say that Organizations like the United Nations, you know, the World Health Organization, the European Union, arguably the federal government of the United States, and globalism and global trade and global migration in general are all symptoms of darkness, as they see it, because they all are eroding boundaries and making boundaries irrelevant. You spoke to a, a number of these people um, who live in different parts of the world, and you also focus on the differences in terms of how they see this. Uh, and obviously, they bring to it their own experiences, their own uh, background. Steve Bannon, uh, you interviewed uh, quite extensively. He was, of course, the former CEO of Breitbart, who went on to manage Donald Trump's campaign, stayed on, uh, was in the Trump administration uh, as a key uh, advisor, national security advisor. You write about him and his uh, philosophy in the book and how he sees traditionalism. So tell us more about that. One of his key inventions in all of this is to try and reconcile traditionalism, which, which historically has been anti-capitalist, anti-Christian, and, and recently also anti-American, to try and reconcile all that with American nationalism. Um, and part of the way that he's done it is to try and redefine the United States not based on its secular political values, not even on you know, what would be represented in the Constitution per se, um, but instead on what he sees as more primordial American identities and essences. Um, you know, I mean, don't ask me to define them because again, when we get to that level of detail, things get very murky, but, um, one big takeaway is that what makes America, America in his mind is not necessarily all of those, uh, you know, political principles that, you know, that are fought over and, and often described as, as being our signature, um, in the world. It's, it more has to do with our roots in a Judeo-Christian West, as he sees it. Um, our roots as a satellite of Europe, um, and and reconnecting America with itself involves reviving that that identity and treating it as primary in our politics, even in our geopolitics. 
So that's part of it. Um, he also yeah, he also wants to see a sort of deprioritization of economics in American life. He he doesn't see capitalism again or free market capitalism necessarily as being the signature of what it means to be American. It, it's it has to do again with with Christianity, Judeo Christianity. He would often make a point of pointing out to me. Um, and, and that's an area where, where also he seems to have brought, brought the school into his visions, visions for the United States. He's also had this influence, obviously, on Donald Trump and set in motion so many of the policies we see. Uh, and certainly his view melds with Trump wanting to have a wall on the border and immigration. Did he, did he, um, inform these beliefs uh, for Trump in the sense of, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did he kind of give Trump a framework for things Trump already um, had these base beliefs in? Or did he kind, did Trump kind of, you know, get completely uh, transformed by Bannon's ideas uh, and sort of didn't even have these kind of ideas himself? Well, it, you know, implanting an idea in Trump's head and getting him to act on it, I think, is, is, is quite a task. And, and in Steve's case, it wasn't so much that he, let's say, schooled Trump um, in this way of thinking. It was a matter and part of reinforcing some pre-existing tendencies that Trump had um, so that, you know, that would include the opposition to China um, you know, sharpening the the rhetoric about borders and immigration, um, enhancing this campaign to make the Republican Party a sort of workers' party, a labor party, um, so long as it's the right type of labor, right, or the right laborers that, mm-hmm. that we're talking about. Um, so, you know, there was enhancement going on there, but, um, you know, where we really see, where some of the, the more striking examples of this has, really have to do with the narratives that Steve seem to tell himself and and also tell a select you know few around him about what Trump means you know if I can go back to that that time cycle that we were speaking about just a moment ago the belief that time is going moving cyclically through uh, through through eras there's a fatalism to that there's really uh, a belief that the universe is doing things on its own and you know the most that you can do is be enlightened about it one thing that that people have suspected, but but I've I've learned that Bannon really has a sort of spiritual investment in, is is the notion that Trump is a destroyer. Um, the belief that you know Trump, his erratic behavior, his disregard for norms, um, you know just just to name a few things, just to get us started, that all of this could actually play a sort of eschatological function. Uh, that Bannon saw that that destructive capability as, as potentially being a force to move society forward in this time cycle. Um, and that's something that, that Steve and I end up talking a fair bit about. And I relay that in the book that, uh, you know, really the, the destructive capability of Trump, he saw as being a prerequisite for rejuvenation and rebirth, um, you know, for a rebirth of a more grand America that used to be. Um, so it's in that sense, it's, you know, he sharpened things, mm-hmm. but this also has to do with his, you know, his analysis of the world that he's living in and the forces at play. 
Mm-hmm. You uh, did speak with him uh, quite extensively. You also uh, write about other uh, traditionalism influencers um, whom you also uh, spoke with Alexander Dugan of Russia um, and in Brazil, Olavio de Caravallo. Uh, maybe I mm-hmm. have the pronunciation wrong. And and the impact they've had. They have differences uh, as well, but we're we're seeing obviously them working within uh, societies that also have far right um, authoritarian leaders as well. Yes, yes, and it's it's somewhat striking. All of them. All of them have uh, been advisors to populist or anti-liberal leaders. Um, you know, Bannon with Trump. In the case of Olavo, we're talking about Bolsonaro um, in Brazil, and in the case of Dugan, it is Putin. And they all have different types of relationships to those to those figures. But but this is a historical anomaly. Um, and what? You know, in terms of a tangible result of this, a lot of uh, traditionalism, according to Bannon, uh, has to do with prioritizing the spiritual over the material. So in his, to put that in other terms, we could say basing your politics on identity, culture, and religion rather than economics, and your geopolitics on that as well. Um, that is echoed by the Brazilian, his Brazilian counterpart, who he has been meeting with and coordinating and collaborating with. And for them, a lot of this has to do with, uh, this has pointed them to try and unite Brazil with other Christian nations um, and to specifically to reorient Brazil away from China and toward the United States in its geopolitical dealings. Um, You know, a major hiccup in that is that Trump is also very protectionist, so the economic safety net for that is, uh, is really just not there. Um, for Brazil to break off from China, but that's that's a tangible result. I, I also chronicle in the book how how Bannon has been reaching out to Alexander Dugan in secrecy, the Russian ideologue, trying to make the same case, trying to say that Russia, a Christian nation um, inspired by Dugan, a traditionalist, ought to reunite with its spiritual roots and base its geopolitics on uniting with other Christians and thereby also to isolate China. That one hasn't worked as well, <laughs> um, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, it certainly seems to be an ongoing effort for for Dan. It's interesting because that hasn't worked as well because uh, obviously Russia uh, has closer ties with China. It's also it's also very bizarre the way that Trump interacts with China because on the one hand, yes, he sort of you know. Um, agrees with Bannon and certainly now in this uh, pandemic, he's suddenly focused on blaming China. At the same time, he's really connected with President Xi uh, as a fellow authoritarian. He rarely criticizes him, even as now. He's always China, China. He never says Xi, right? <laughs> um, no. he, it, it, and, and so there's a tension there too, because I've seen that Bannon is now speaking out and saying that this, you know, this backs up his whole, right, this backs up his whole um, belief system of traditionalism about borders, as you said, that China, they see China as having, um, you know, created this or unleashed this virus. Uh, And yet Trump is not treating China the way that Bannon would like to see him treat China. 
No, no, and 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 really, you mapped that out correctly. It's they're 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 opposed agendas here. There's fighting China, but then there's also celebration and apologetics for strongmen. And mm-hmm. and you know, Trump Trump is the apparent strategy is don't ever insult Xi, but but insult China. Um, you know, so Steve Steve has been wanting a hard line on China the entire time. And really that the opposition to China goes back, you know, before the Trump campaign for sure. Um, and what he sees in the coronavirus outbreak is, is yes, you know, p- potential villainous behavior on part of China. He's certainly been willing to entertain uh, claims that it could have been made in a lab or that it was orchestrated. And that, and he's also said that China ought to pay reparations to the world. Um, a, a claim that won him a rebuke, by the way, on, on China state television this past weekend. <laughs> um, but he also sees, as, as does Dugan, that this outbreak right now um, is going to reward societies that have borders and that can galvanize themselves collectively and punish societies that are more integrated into the global system of exchange of peoples and goods and, and monies. Um, so, so this is a, a time right now, it comes after the publication of my book, but this is a time where they really see that, that vision as being enacted. Um, and, and I, I would say are also energized by it. The book is war on eternity, the rise of the far right and the return of traditionalism. Benjamin Teitelbaum is the author and my guest. So, in looking at uh, Bannon now, and, and you sat down with him and you see and talk to him and you see how, of course, he's been uh, working with a lot of these governments around the world and looking at the Trump administration and looking at, obviously, the tensions that developed, uh, even if Trump loses the election, and I guess I, I should have started this out by saying a lot of people see Bannon as sort of being irrelevant at this point, as desperate. He's tried to get certain things done, hasn't worked uh, as well as he thought. He's trying with these other uh, governments, um, and he's had some success here and there. Um, But people are sort of seeing him as irrelevant, and if Trump loses the election, he's really irrelevant. And you see something else that this is part of this much larger movement that's going to have uh, an impact for a time to come. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there are two bodies that. of commentary on Bannon. You know, one is that it's all about optics, and he's a blowhard and a showman, and he's uh, irrelevant and ineffective. The other is that he's the evil genius, machinating and a puppet master figure, and not only based on my, my interviews, but also based on a close reading of his history, you come away from it thinking that both poles are true. It's not mm-hmm. that, you know, we have two extremes and the truth is in the middle. It's that the extremes about him are true at the same time. Um, he does, you know, he does have catastrophic failures in policy and initiatives. And, um, and he's extremely hungry for attention. Um, at the same time, he also gets access and a lot of people consult with him. His, uh, his circle of contact is enormous, absolutely enormous. Um, and you know, where in some places he, he hits a roadblock and someplace else like Brazil, 
you know, he ends up being included in, in some fairly high level diplomatic dealings with the United States. Um, and, you know, again, this most recent targeting, a very uncharacteristic targeting by the Chinese government of him on May 3rd, uh, with a broadcast, a primetime television news broadcast that they devoted almost two minutes to just trying to trash him. Um, I, I don't think that I'm the only person in the world that sees, sees a lot of potential, a lot of action and, and potential results behind him right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the well, trick is is just is knowing where to look for for those results. Mm-hmm. Uh, really uh, interesting and uh, really uh, illuminating, and uh, great to um, have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, an honor to be with you. Thank you, Benjamin Teitelbaum, who is the author of War for Eternity. The Rise of the Far Right and the Return of Traditionalism. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Title T E I T E L. We're back in a couple of minutes. The Michelangelo Senior Ellie Show.